Hi, Storehouse. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated as at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believer. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this afternoon. In the event that you're just walking in or you didn't catch Christina, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 12 this afternoon. 1 Thessalonians is this small book located in the New Testament. While you open or load your Bible, let me just give you a couple of quick updates. The first one is, as you walked in, you may or not, you may have or maybe not noticed uh, that we have these uh, devotionals out at the Connect Desk. These devotionals this year are called Reformed Liturgy, and uh, these are our gift to you. So if you get up right now, everyone will make fun of you, and I'll point it out. But, Alan, uh, no, we're just <laughs> He's actually one of the authors. Um, uh, <laughs> when it comes to uh, the Reformed Liturgy, or when it comes to devotionals, he- here's our goal, here's our desire. We want to help you grow as disciples of Jesus uh, through, through uh, devotionals, through tools such as devotionals. And so we produce and publish these free resources for you. Uh, what I love about our devotionals is that they're written in-house. Uh, the, the authors, the, contributor, the contributors, the writers are all members of our congregation. And so this one in particular, as I mentioned, is called Reformed Liturgy. And one of the seasons that we put, or two of the seasons that we put a lot of eggs in the basket of is that of the season of Lent and then moving into Holy Week. And uh, so this devotional covers some spiritual disciplines uh, as we unpack the, or as we enter the season of Lent, but also walks us into Holy Week where we're considering Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and finally Resurrection Sunday. So we're really excited about these in the event that we run out. You could always go to our website and download them for free 99. So they are available on the website. There's only a limited amount in print, but other than that, that is our gift to you. So I hope that you are blessed by that. In addition to the devotionals, man, one of the things that we tend to push, promote, and, and, and talk a lot about is community. And we have various community groups that meet in McAllen and our surrounding cities. For us, community groups are the lifeblood of our church. It's the primary avenue for discipleship in our church. And this is where we unpack everything from the devotionals to discipleship guides all of that stuff. If you're not plugged in, get connected into one. Visit the Connect Desk, and they'll give you all the information concerning our community groups. Other than that, those are the only updates that I have for you. Once more, I hope that you are blessed by some of this gospel-centered content that we're producing for y'all. hope you guys are enjoying it. Oh, one last thing. As far as the season of Lent Lent goes, 
Tomorrow we're releasing uh, a video sermon for the season of Lent. So that'll be available on our website. Go check it out. Enjoy it. Hope you are blessed. Let's dig into our time because I could just keep going. Once more, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12. So I was listening to the start of a podcast several months ago where they recorded uh, a former pastor of a large church saying that when it came to ministry or when it came to discipleship, which we'll unpack later, but when it came to ministry or discipleship, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like getting on a bus and we want everybody on the bus. And the goal of discipleship is to put everybody on the bus and whoever doesn't want to be on the bus is ultimately going to be run over by the bus. That was his analogy for, for ministry, right? One commentator went on to add that when leaders and churches embrace this style of ministry, this style of discipleship, one thing that sadly goes unnoticed, that tragically goes unnoticed, is that as they look behind, they ignore the pile of bodies that were left behind. The sad and tragic reality of an analogy like this or a style of ministry or discipleship like this is that it's not unique to that pastor. In fact, many churches embrace this form of discipleship and call it healthy and meaningful, especially when they're promoting the advancing of the gospel. However, in today's text, what we're going to notice is that the Apostle Paul has a completely different and radical approach to discipleship. And so if you're new to Storehouse, we regularly speak of discipleship here at our church because we are a church that exists to make disciples of Jesus. That is, the way we would define discipleship is we meet people where they are and we take them where Jesus wants them to be. Discipleship for our church is so paramount because it's the one thing Jesus told us to do. When you consider his words in Matthew 28, he goes on to say, Go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the one thing that Jesus told his church to do. However, when it comes to discipleship, I also recognize that there are, are at least two obstacles when it comes to discipleship, even within our church. The first one is skepticism. There are many who are skeptical about discipleship for a whole host of reasons. For instance, maybe you or you know somebody who, uh, the way it's sometimes communicated, they slipped through the cracks. They were trying to get connected. They were trying to get plugged in with someone, and it just didn't work out or it hasn't happened. And therefore, when it comes to the uh, conversation about discipleship, it's something that, well, we really, I'm, I'm not really down with it. Nobody followed up with me. Perhaps you did get to meet with someone, but it was just inconsistent, or perhaps when it came to discipleship, it was more like being bullied. It was more like not actually being cared for. Therefore, it produced hurt, not wholeness. The second obstacle when it comes to discipleship tends to be practice. One of the, uh, one of the common questions that I receive about discipleship is, I got it. We make disciples of Jesus. Cool, 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 cool. How do we make disciples of Jesus? Like, what do I do? when it comes to making disciples. Well, we're gonna cover those two things in our text this, uh, this afternoon, but more importantly, here's what I want us to know, here's what I want us to see, and that is that the fruit of Christian discipleship produces healthy and whole disciples of Jesus. The fruit of Christian discipleship, and you might be saying, why don't you just say discipleship? We'll talk about that in a moment. The fruit of Christian discipleship produces healthy and whole disciples of Jesus. So let me pray, and then we're going to dig into our time here in 1 Thessalonians. God, we begin by thanking you for this afternoon and allowing us to gather to uh, praise your name, praise uh, your work of redemption through Jesus for us. God, as we uh, consider and examine your word, may we consider and examine our hearts as we look to your word. God, may you uh, lead us to not only worship you, but to evaluate our hearts, to uh, repent of sin, to praise you even more loudly. 
God, would you lead us to this place where we know and live like Jesus as we walk out of here later to, uh, this afternoon? God, would you give us wisdom and would you allow your word to be sweeter than the taste of honey for us? We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's why I gave that little distinction, right? So the fruit of Christian discipleship. Well, why do I say it that way? Well, because here's the news. Everybody makes disciples. You don't have to be a Christian to make disciples because every single person is making a disciple. And discipleship always begins with a message, Every single movement, every single ideology or philosophy or organization has a message that is being preached loudly and faithfully. The question is, how is the church distinct? If everyone is making disciples, if everyone, whether they're Christian or not, are proclaiming and declaring something, how is the church distinct? Our distinction is that the message we proclaim is not of our own. It's not our own thinking, it's not of our own construction, and it's certainly not of our own intellect. It's the message of God where he redeems sinners and reconciles them to himself through Jesus. And this is what Paul is addressing in the opening verses of chapter two. We're gonna look at verse one through the first part of verse four. Ultimately, what Paul is getting at is that the content of Christian discipleship, the message of Christian discipleship is the gospel. And what makes our message distinct, according to Paul, is character and conviction. That's what makes our message distinct. It's not just what the message is, it's how it makes it distinct is our character and our conviction. Okay, let's look at verses one through four. So Paul goes on to say, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That's the section that we're going to be looking at. So beginning with character, how is this message distinct? Paul says, well, look at character. Or look at our character. Remember, Paul is a part of a team when it comes to the Thessalonians. And when it comes to character, we're examining the kind of person he is, the kind of person he is under pressure, the kind of person you are under pressure in community, in hardship, in good times, over time. That's how we evaluate character. And for Paul, character begins with suffering. He goes on to talk about the events that happened to them at Philippi. You can go to this later, but in the event that you're taking notes, in Acts 16, verses 16 to 24, we see Paul and his team walking around at Philippi, and they deliver this young woman who was demon-possessed and was also a slave. Upon that happening, her owners see that, and they get really upset, and so they get Paul, and they beat him and his friends. They throw him into jail, and what Paul is ultimately saying, bringing it back to 1 Thessalonians, is character begins with suffering. In other words, this message is distinct because we have the scars to prove it. This message is distinct because of the suffering that we have undergone exactly because of this message. It's not because my name was Paul, it's because of the message that I was proclaiming. And in Acts 16 through Acts 17, we see Paul and his team constantly beaten, chained, thrown in prison, and as they're doing that, they're still finding ways to proclaim the gospel. And for Paul, he's saying, hey, character is gonna be formed over time, and one of the things that's gonna form your character is suffering. So one of the questions that you and I can ask ourselves, right, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the content or the distinction of the message of the gospel is, have I really suffered for it? Now, you may not be like Paul, where you get beatings or you get thrown in prison. We might not experience that, but maybe you've experienced rejection, ridicule. Character begins with suffering. One of the other ways uh, that Paul continues to unpack character is that when it comes to integrity, 
Because here's the thing, usually when it comes to other movements or ideologies, there's usually a benefit that one receives from really pushing these kinds of things. And suffering, like the way Paul did, isn't necessarily one of those things. Because again, Paul wasn't necessarily sharing good advice, he was sharing the good news of Jesus. And what Paul is ultimately experiencing is through hardship, it's only adding to his integrity. And integrity is the second part. Within character, we have suffering and we have integrity. Paul mentions that the message they were declaring was from God and not of themselves. And he continues by saying that the char- his character is proof of that. Looking back at verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive. In other words, he's saying, man, this message that we're giving you, it's not one that I came up with. It's not one that has error. In other words, I'm not throwing some human spin on it just to try to get you to do what I want. Elsewhere, he uses the word flattery, and it's another word for manipulation. And so Paul's saying, like, I'm not throwing this cloak of manipulation at you. I'm giving you the message that was given to me. In addition to that, Paul continues by saying that there was no impurity. In other words, the way he conducted himself among the Thessalonians did not bring reproach to the gospel. It did not bring question to the gospel. That if there were any problems, the problems were with him, not with the message. And then finally, he goes on to say that it was empty of deception. In other words, he's not trying to have this transactional relationship with them. He's not trying to get money, which we'll talk about in a bit. He's not trying to get money. He's not trying to get some kind of personal gain from the Thessalonians. In, chat, or excuse me, in verse 10, he goes on to say, you are witnesses and God also. In other words, he's saying, hey, you remember this. You remember how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. He's not saying, you remember how awesome we were. No. He's saying, you remember how we walked according to God and respected you and honored you and treated you with this gospel tenderness. So, man, what's the credit? What makes this message distinct? It's our character. Well, what's involved with character? Suffering, integrity. To the Corinthians, Paul says something different, or excuse me, uh, similar. He says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. When it comes to integrity, Paul was the same way with the Corinthians as he was with the Thessalonians, as he was with the Galatians, as he was with the Romans. Saying, man, what makes this message distinct? He has the confidence to say, look at our character. Finally, still under character, Paul addresses stewardship. In other words, Paul is not entitled to anything, but everything, including the message he is preaching, is one that has been given to him. He goes on to say, we have been approved by God to be entrusted, there's that word, stewardship, entrusted with the gospel, so we speak See, for Paul, it wasn't just, uh, he wasn't just a steward because he was an apostle. No, he was a steward because he was a Christian. He was a steward because, man, he had received this message of salvation, and now he is declaring this same message of salvation to those who didn't know Jesus. He's not just doing this as an apostle. He's doing this because this is what Christians do. Discipleship always begins with a message. Always. And so we're not only stewards of what we've been given by way of materials, but also by what we've been been entrusted with to speak. The message of the gospel, what makes it so distinct, according to Paul, is character. And what's involved in character is suffering, integrity, and stewardship. Secondly, Paul tells us or he shows us in these first few verses that the other thing that makes the message distinct is conviction. It's not just a firmly held set of beliefs that Paul has, Paul and his team, right? It's not just a firmly set of beliefs. Like, in other words, they are boiling and brewing up that he has to speak 
Going to verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word vain, what he's talking about is when we came to you, it wasn't meaningless. It wasn't purposeless. It wasn't random. We were going to go in spite of what happened. We were going to go wherever it is God called us to go to proclaim this message. Because that's how convicted we are of this message. It is not solely my character and personality that shapes me by this message. It's the fact that it compels me to go out and preach this message. That's why we came to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'll go to wherever it is I need to go to proclaim this message. Elsewhere, Paul continues, uh, he says that though we had suffered already in Philippi, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. I love that, right? Because it's it's like really uh, explicit language. Like he's not, you've, uh, you've heard of this quote? Uh, it's, it's really, um, oh, what's the word? It's taken out of context, right? Like preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, right? Maybe some of you have heard that, right? Yeah, don't be dumb, okay? Paul says, right, like we, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. And so as a result of conviction, he has boldness to go and actually declare, proclaim, whatever you want to say, to declare the gospel, to say, hey, God redeems sinners to himself through Jesus. That was what Paul was declaring. So conviction involves that wherever it is you are, it's not meaningless. Conviction involves boldness. Conviction also involves security. Uh, Back to verse 4, he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. In other words, they're speaking not because they were trying to get admiration or approval from the Thessalonians for Paul. He's saying, I'm preaching you this message because I'm so compelled, I'm so convicted to preach this message. I don't have anything to prove. I am secure by God because of Jesus. Like there's nothing else that can take away from him. He's speaking from a posture of binding security in Christ. So when we look at character, once more we're looking at suffering, we're looking at integrity and stewardship, and when we come to conviction, where you are is not random. Boldness to speak where you are. Boldness to speak where you are because you have been secured by God through Jesus. Discipleship always begins with a message. And because everyone makes disciples to one degree or another, everyone is proclaiming, declaring, or heralding something. As a church, as a church, us, I'm not just talking about everyone else, as a church to one another, here's your question, What message are you sharing with one another? What message is central for when you gather together, not just the Sunday gathering, but in particular outside of the Sunday gathering, and not just in community group, not just in some formal way of community, but when you're with one another, what message is central? Has the message of the gospel taken root in your character and in your convictions? One of the things I get a lot about when, a, when it comes to discipleship is, man, I, I just don't know enough to disciple someone. According to these verses, if you know the gospel, you're fit to make a disciple, right? So there you go. I hope you feel empowered if you know that, hey, God redeems sinners and reconciles them to himself through Jesus. Go make disciples. You know enough. The content of discipleship begins with the message of the gospel. Well, just as discipleship involves a message, it also involves motivation. And this is the why of why we make disciples. Motivation involves the heart. This is the second part of verse 4 through verse 6. And when it comes to the heart, this is central to everything from our emotions, our character, and in our decision-making. And it all boils down to the condition of our hearts. And in these verses, Paul explains their motivation. So beginning at the last half of verse 4, he goes on to say, So we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our heart. Hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, uh, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 
Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, right? So here's their motivation. It's really, really simple, right? But it's not easy. This, the, 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 their motivation was that they were going there to make disciples, but not to please the Thessalonians. They weren't trying to please man. In other words, Paul is telling them, when we came to preach the gospel to you, when we came to share the gospel, when we came to make disciples here in Thessalonica, we weren't seeking admiration from you. We didn't want to receive self-glory. We didn't want appeasement from you. We weren't here to flatter you. In other words, use crafty, manipulative language so that we can get what we want, right? Paul even goes on to say, we didn't even receive money from you because we're so serious about this message. We're so compelled by this message that we didn't even want to receive money from you because this wasn't a transaction. I'm not after your wallets. I'm after your souls, In verse 9, Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, man, what we ended up doing just so that, you know, we would put to uh, drown some of that skepticism, right? Because in Thessalonica, it was this big culture of, of, of Jewish belief mixed with paganism. And so there was a bunch of people who were looking at Paul and his team like, why are you here, right? Very valley, right? Everybody in the valley questions everybody, right? Like, why, why'd you come here? What? You know, like, hey, man, I need to talk to you about what? What do you, need, what do you need to, what do you need to tell me, right? Like, everybody's so, like, skeptical and suspicious. And so you could tell, like, the Thessalonians were kind of like that. And so Paul is saying, hey, man, I'm so serious about that. I didn't even want, I didn't even want money. We're not here for money. Right? I'm going to go get the job because I need to eat, right? Tacos are cool. And, uh, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to you. So he's sharing his motivation towards them. He even goes on to say, hey, when it comes to my authority as an apostle, I could have told you my story about how Jesus saved me, how I saw the resurrected Christ. I could tell you the kind of authority I have. Instead, Paul forfeits it because he wanted to love the Thessalonians where they were. And in this text, he goes on to share what their, motive, what their true motivation really was, and that was to please God. That in them proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, for Paul, he wanted God to receive all of the glory. Because it's only Jesus who saves. It's only Jesus who transforms. It's only Jesus who sustains It is only uh, God through Jesus who brings dead hearts to life. And for Paul and his team, they could do it with confidence, yes, with character and conviction, but also with confidence because for them, they were already secure in their faith. Now, this isn't to say that they were better. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten side gigs to keep proclaiming the gospel. It's not that they didn't work hard. Like some Christians are like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to stand back. God's going to do the work anyway. Like, no, what you see Paul do is he constantly engages the people he's around with the gospel. He's working side gigs, but he's also proclaiming the gospel to them. He was after their souls, not their money. He was after their souls for their good and God's glory. Paul gave himself so that they might be redeemed. So here it is. Here it is, Storehouse. More questions. What's your motivation for making disciples? What's your motivation for not making disciples? How about that one? What's your motivation for not making disciples? If motivation begins with our heart, then where is your heart at right now? See, there are some of you who make disciples faithfully, right? You're digging into God's word. You're in community with one another. You point one another to Jesus. It's about his glory and your good. I love that. Keep it going. Like, you're awesome. And then there are others, for instance, who fall under this broad category of of self-centered discipleship. And this usually unfolds in one of two ways. The first way when we, uh, uh, when we look at self-centered discipleship is where we try to mold people or other Christians to be someone we want them to be. 
That rather than discipling one another to point one another to Jesus, we disciple one another, quotations, we disciple one another, but really we're just trying to mold one another or we're just trying to mold someone to be someone I want them to be. And this is incredibly dangerous and incredibly sinful because we'll use gospel-centered Christianese language, we'll use the message of the gospel to manipulate what we really want. That's what makes it incredibly dangerous and sinful. Another way in which we pursue self-centered discipleship is where we just don't do anything. Where we don't do anything because we believe that we are owed from the body. And how do you know you, you feel like you, the, the body owes you something? You bust out this personal resume of all of the things that you've done, all of the ways in which you've served, how much you've given, all of these different things. And in reality, you're entitled. The reason you either don't disciple or the kind of disciples you make aren't those of Jesus, of yourselves, it's because you believe the church owes you. Let me tell you, that's not just consumeristic, that's cancerous. That erodes the health of the church. Those two ways of quote unquote discipleship. See, the root of our why is always gonna be the heart. So the challenge here is examine your heart, church. Because at the end of the day, the goal is to make disciples of Jesus for our good and his glory, not to make disciples of ourselves. Discipleship always, always involves motivation. And so now let us consider the method of discipleship that Paul both uh, uses with the Thessalonians and by way of the Holy Spirit urges us to consider and use. Because just like discipleship always involves a message, just because it always involves motivation, it also involves methods, intentional methods. And discipleship, broadly speaking, I've talked about this before, but discipleship, broadly speaking, involves two things, all right? And everybody's like, oh, what are they? All right, all right here it is, ready? Here we go. To be known and to be challenged. That's what's involved in discipleship. I can already see people getting uncomfortable. Good, right? Broadly speaking, discipleship involves being known and being challenged. And so here Paul uses two analogies that make up this method of discipleship. The first one is that of a nursing mother. This is verse 7. <clears throat> Paul goes on to say, but we were gentle. In other words, we didn't use our authority Right? We didn't just come in, busting the door down, saying we're, like, we're apostles. Right? He didn't say that. He says, we came in, we, we forfeited our authority, and instead we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel. So it's like we didn't only want to proclaim this, but also our very own selves. Other translations will say our very own lives because you had become very dear to us. The first thing that Paul says is, hey, discipleship, the way we're going to make healthy and whole disciples of Jesus is like that of a nursing mother. That might sound kind of interesting or kind of funny, but stay with me. Right? Like, what does it entail? Those of you moms, what does it entail? I'm sure it entails a lot more. I'm going to give you three things. first thing it entails is patience. Why? Because when their babies are in need, a mother is patient, a mother is loving, a mother is nurturing. It involves compassion. Why? Because when her baby is crying, mom's going to wake up in the middle of the night and go check on her baby. And she's going to demonstrate compassion because Compassion never comes at a convenient time, right? If we're considering the mom who wakes up in the middle of the night to nurse her, her baby, man, she's like sound asleep, super tired from the day. It's 2.30 a.m., it's 3.45 a.m., it's 4.01 a.m. She's waking up. That's compassion. 
meeting people where they are. Meeting people where they are when it's really inconvenient. And being patient with them as they're rolling out their needs. But then what else, and especially in light of this analogy, right? Paul says like a nursing mother. Man, what, what makes it like a nursing mom? When a mom nurses her child in Paul's meaning, she gives her very own life for that child's good. She gives her very own life for that child to grow. And so Paul is saying that him and his team loved the Thessalonians so much that they weren't ready to just drop the words of the gospel, that they were ready to give their very lives like a nursing mother, that they were ready and willing to be patient, to be compassionate, to bring life to them. Storehouse, how are we doing in this area? Pastor Jeff last week asked a great question when he went on to say, what are we known for in our city? I want to change that question just a little bit as to pertain to this chapter, and that is, what are we known for among our own church? Are we ready to exercise patience, compassion? Are we ready to share our very own life with one another? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there aren't boundaries. I'm not saying that there aren't things you need to address and make clear. I'm not talking about that. It's just another sermon, right? Like, there, those things exist. Like, I guarantee you, if you call me at 3 a.m., I'm probably not going to answer, right? Like, it's just, <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> I'm not saying there aren't boundaries. But here's what I am saying. Discipleship is risky, because we're going to bear our souls with one another. But when the message of the gospel and the motivation of our hearts are centered on Jesus, Proverbs says that a, a good word brings life to dry bones. The second analogy that Paul uses is found in verse 11 and 10, or excuse me, 11 and 12. And this is that of a godly father. So we got the nursing mother, the one who exercises patience and compassion and brings life. And then we got uh, the, the godly father. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right? <clears throat> the first thing that Paul wants us to know as far as this analogy is that, that a, a, a good godly dad is an example in this passage, in verses 1 through 12, over and over again, and even in chapter 1, Paul is constantly saying, you became imitators of us. You saw how we conducted ourselves among you. You saw the manner in which we lived around you. Paul is constantly talking about them or him being an example. Last week, uh, Jeff mentioned that discipleship involves imitation. And so Paul was this godly example to the Thessalonians of what a father is like with his children. And so here's the thing. Let me pause right here, right? When it comes to discipleship in the church, none of us are immune. Like, it's a role that we all take, right? All of us. And so then when we look at the whole nursing mother and the godly father, it's like, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll be the godly father, not the nursing mom. No, 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 These are analogies, so chill, right? The idea here is that both are brought to the table. You're not just the person that brings truth bombs because you're all about the truth, and I'm just going to tell people how it is. Now, part of it is that you also need to grow in compassion just as others meet you in compassion, but at the same time, some of you are super compassionate, and I love that, but you also need to exercise the truth, not forfeiting it because it's uncomfortable. And so here, back to the text, Paul is saying, man, I was an example to you uh, like, like a dad is to his children. But the other thing is like fathers aren't just examples. Fathers are also teachers. And so in verse 12, he goes on to say, that we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. Let's break each one of these down. The first one is to exhort. When you are exhorted by a brother or sister, that means that they're going to speak plainly to you, sometimes firmly, right? Uh, that they are going to address something about your habits or your behaviors. In other words, it's receiving correction. 
It's receiving correction, and it's meant to build you up to develop new habits and godly actions. To be exhorted is formative if you're pointing one another to Jesus. Right? This is the part where it's like, I'm just going to drop these truth bombs, and then you just leave it there and walk away, and it's like, go figure it out. Like, no, 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 no. An exhortation, right, to give correction, to speak plainly, respectfully, and lovingly to one another means I'm going to point you to Jesus. We're going to address these things, but I'm also going to walk with you as you grow in the faith. That's the first thing that Paul says. The next one is to encourage Right? When it comes to encouragement, this is Paul giving, uh, this is when we give personal attention to those who are struggling and discouraged and weak. Man, this is like sometimes like Christians from the south side are like this, right? The south side of heaven, right? When you see like a, you see people who are like struggling and weak and she's like, just get over it. Like, yeah, it's not, okay, it's not going to be that easy, okay? We want to encourage one another. And encouragement looks like sitting with one another in friendship, praying for one another, listening to each other, offering gospel reminders, building one another up through availability. That whole encouragement piece, even though he's, you know, kind of tying it to godly dads, sounds a lot like compassion. Finally, he says, man, I charged you. In other words, what Paul is saying is he's, he's, he's coming to the Thessalonians with the heart of a father who comes alongside of his children to remind them, hey, this is who God is. This is what God has done for you. As a result, you are empowered by the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You can do this. You can keep moving forward. And it's this walking alongside, right? When he says to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, right, or worthy of God, the word walk is a life embraced that is in step with the gospel. So both of these analogies really come in to show that, oh man, discipleship is about being known, and it's about being challenged. And so for a moment, I want to pause, because here's one of the things I've learned. All right, here's one of the things I've learned about our church in the last couple of weeks. A passage like this can be really difficult to receive. Especially if you're in experiencing exhaustion, distress, even loneliness. It can be really difficult to receive a passage like this. So I want to offer you three encouragements. Because right? thus far, we've looked at the message, the motivation, and the method. Now I just want to give you encouragements. Here's the first one. If that's you, right? whether exhaustion, loneliness, first thing is, God has not forsaken you. He has not left you to yourself. He has not forgotten about you. In fact, I hope that this passage shows you that everything Paul is encouraging and reminding the Thessalonians on was first demonstrated by our Lord Jesus. See, Jesus proclaimed a message of salvation. Jesus' motivation was driven by his approval from the Father. Jesus' method was by meeting people where they were, just as he met you where you were and where you are. Just as he called you to himself, right now he calls you tenderly to himself. He has not forsaken you. Secondly, if the church has slipped up, right, like let's say it's not on you, haven't been discipled, haven't been checked in on, haven't been checked on very much, right, let me be the first to apologize. Like I'll take that. Let me be the first to apologize. And I'm so sorry that that has happened. I'm so sorry if that's been your experience. I hope you know that I love you. And I hope that you know that while the perfect church doesn't exist, it's not an excuse. But it does help to remind us of our sanctification. See, we're the only people who's been reconciled to God through Jesus and are in process. Finally, is it possible that you are not innocent in this as well? Is it possible 
that you have traded the message of the gospel for a different one? Is it possible that you have forfeited a heart for God and adopted a selfish one, an entitled one? Is it possible that rather than giving yourself, you have become entitled? Is it possible that though we've failed one another in in pursuing one another, that, man, we want to talk more about that than how hardened our hearts actually are? See, the Thessalonians didn't always have it right but they were healthy because they were captivated by the gospel. And their captivation bled into the way they discipled one another. Their discipleship of one another produced the fruit of Christ, not of the culture. See, because here's the thing. I don't want... Uh, I don't want to be on a bus where we look back and there are all these bodies behind it. In fact, I don't even want to be on a bus. I don't even like a bus, right? I want to be among my church where the beauty and messiness of discipleship is taken so seriously because we are so captivated by the gospel that we not only bear the fruit of healthy living, holistic living, but our city can't help but notice I want us to be a church known for making disciples because we are so absolutely convinced that the advancing of the gospel comes through discipleship in community. I want us to be so captivated by the gospel of God that we encourage one another with the words of Jesus and herald the promises of Jesus to a watching world. I want us to be a church that bears the fruit of Christ, not of the culture. And so, this afternoon, Christian, what would it look like for you to confess your sin before the Lord? For you to lay your heart out honestly before the Lord? And what would it look like, what would it take for you to call another saint in the church this afternoon, not tomorrow, not Friday, to call another saint in the church and say, hey, how are you doing? I wanted to check on you. On the other side of that, what's it going to look like for you to call another brother or sister in the church and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm not doing well. I really need to talk. You're like, man, that's really scary. I know it is. Like, I'll just speak from my own experience. Like, when it comes to pastoral ministry, pastors and all that, there's this, like, stigma, there's this uh, belief that, like, the pastor, pastors, like, they got it all together. They must be super holy in some holy huddle. Like, no, I had to call two of the guys uh, four weeks ago, get on the phone and say, hey, I'm not doing well. I know you're busy. We need to meet. And it wasn't because I just wanted to hang out. It's because so much is already welling in me. It's like, hey, I need to meet. Like, pastors aren't immune to this. Why, why do you think the church would be? Like, no te hagas. So what would it look like for you to call a brother or sister today and say, hey, how are you doing? I wanted to check in on you. What would it look like for you to call a brother and sister and say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm not doing well. Could you pray for me? Are we captivated by the gospel enough to do that? Are we captivated by the gospel enough to do that? Or are we really going to allow pride to be the death of our health? Are we really going to allow for pride to be what keeps us from making disciples for the sake of our own comfort? Like, that's going to be the reason? Like, that's what we got. It's going to be our pride. Is our pride going to be the end of us? Or will we be captivated by the gospel enough to say, I just wanted to check in? And if you're not a Christian, man, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being patient, right? 
Rather than being a disciple of our culture, I want you to be a disciple of Jesus. I want you to know that, that you can know Jesus through faith and repentance. In fact, I want you to consider his free offer of salvation through grace. And if you say, man, the church is just full of hypocrites, I would say two things. Number one, thank you for noticing. Number two, what I would add is we are recovering hypocrites. Thank you very much. The fruit of discipleship produces healthy and whole disciples of Jesus. Church, let us go and make disciples. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we close our time this afternoon, we want to give you thanks for um, allowing us to gather, allowing us to worship you. God, as we consider the text, as we consider your word through Paul, Lord, would you bring about comfort through your Holy Spirit? Would you bring about comfort in a way where may you remind us, where you remind us of the time that you met us where we were, calling us to yourself, showering us with your grace. God, would you not only bring about comfort, but would you bring about conviction? You have called us to make disciples. We've been on the end where we have been hurt by one another. We've been on the other end where we do nothing about it. Lord, would you convict us so that we would be faithful at disciple making? Not perfect, just faithful. Whether that would be our friends in the church, our children, may we make faithful, may we be faithful at making disciples. God, and finally, as, as you bring about comfort, as you bring about conviction, would you also bring about change? Remind us of the truth and beauty of your gospel so that we would embrace it so that we would then change. You've already demonstrated that you can change our hearts. It was dead at one point in our sin, and now it is alive in Jesus would you bring about change in our hearts so that our hands would demonstrate it, our conduct would demonstrate it, our faith would demonstrate it? God, as we prepare ourselves for communion, may we remember that when it comes to communion, all of us are on level ground. At communion, we are uh, reminded that we are all sinners who have fallen short that we are all sinners in need of your grace. And for those who know Jesus, we have been justified through the gift of redemption. May we remember that today, Lord. God, we confess our sin before you, individually and as a church. May we be governed by the logic of grace, not the logic of our own hearts, as we come before you in communion.